Last year, it is said you said that uh, textbooks with Western values are not suitable for the classrooms. Can you please give us more explanations on what you mean by Western values? Because Marxism is also a kind of Western value. That's a Wall Street Journal reporter at a press conference in 2016, questioning China's then Minister of Education, Yuan Guerin. The previous year, Yuan had reportedly ordered university officials to disallow textbooks that disseminate Western values. Here was his answer: "I don't know if you are an American or if you are Chinese working here for the Wall Street Journal. Do you have faith in Marxism? The fact that Marxism is our guiding principle reflects the Chinese Communist Party's spirit of openness. Once the philosophy is defined and determined, we will not change." Yuan went on for several minutes without ever really answering the question. But he also didn't deny that he'd made those earlier remarks, which had been the subject of some speculation. It raised fears that an internal party communique leaked in 2013, known as Document Nine, might start to be implemented in universities. Document Nine was a, a secret document that was put out by the central government. That's Orville Shell, director of Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations, and expressed sort of a deep sort of suspiciousness. As to the intentions of sort of liberal Western democracies in conducting their affairs and various kinds of exchanges with China, and I think the sort of hidden text was that China needed to be very careful because the intention of、uh, academic exchanges, even cultural exchanges, scientific exchanges, all of these kinds of civil society interactions. Could have a, a subversive effect on China's one-party political system. Document Nine instructed officials to stop universities and media from discussing seven taboo topics, including Western constitutional democracy, neoliberalism, universal values, press freedom, and past Communist Party mistakes. Since its distribution, in concert with a wider crackdown on dissent, some Chinese professors have reported being pressured and even fired for being critical of the government in class. Then earlier this year, it was announced that top Chinese universities would be subject to ideological inspections to make sure they're towing the party line. I think if you look back and compare it to the 80s, even to the 90s, after 1989, as China slowly began to open up again and to liberalize in many ways, you would have to say there's been a chill, and that the fact that it is extended even to universities and academic exchanges, which were once considered sort of free and clear. Is I think very regrettable and, and worth noting. But against this backdrop, American and other Western universities have flocked in to establish a presence in China. Some schools, including New York University and Duke, have even set up full degree-granting campuses, which has raised concerns in the U.S. Congress. The Chinese government and the Communist Party are waging a persistent, intense, and escalating campaign to suppress dissent, purge rivals from within the party. And regain total ideological control over the arts, media, and universities. That's Republican Congressman Chris Smith from New Jersey speaking at a House Committee on Foreign Affairs hearing he organized in 2015. The hearing's purpose was to explore whether American universities are being compromised by China's repression of academic freedom. Some may defend concessions as the cost of doing business in a authoritarian or dictatorship, such as in China. Maybe a university decides that it won't offer a class on human rights in China. Maybe they won't invite a prominent dissident or a fellow or visiting lecturer. Smith is hardly alone in these concerns. In addition to a political atmosphere conducive to self-censorship in Chinese universities, some critics hold that American universities accept funding and agree to terms of entry that make them vulnerable to the whims of Chinese authorities, and that they do so in part to make up for budget shortfalls back home. Which begs a very significant and important question: Are U.S. colleges and universities compromising their images as bastions of free inquiry and academic freedom in exchange for China's education dollars? But those who are part of U.S. universities in China see things very differently. People who have not visited us in person occasionally suggest that NYU Shanghai should not exist. That's Jeff Lehman, vice chancellor of NYU Shanghai, testifying at the Foreign Affairs Committee hearing. Sometimes they argue that American universities should stay away from any authoritarian country. Sometimes they say that China presents unique risks that render academic freedom impossible. While I appreciate the good motives of these individuals who speculate about our university from afar, I do not believe their conclusions are well founded. Last weekend, I told a Shanghainese friend that I would be testifying here today. 
He asked why, and I explained that some people who value the free exchange of ideas believe American universities should not be present in China. His response was crisp and, I believe, quite apt. He said, if someone is truly committed to the free exchange of ideas here in China, they should want to see more schools like NYU Shanghai, not fewer. The presence of schools like NYU in China raises some big questions. Why are Chinese authorities anxious to have Western universities come in at a time that they're cracking down on so-called Western values? Can these schools really maintain complete academic freedom? And what mark do they leave on the young Chinese and foreign students that study there? Of course you're legitimating a regime by cooperating with it. It's quite clear that the Chinese have gotten what they wanted. It's an unholy alliance. Definitely, like, Chinese students are exposed to more information. You could say it's an effort to keep the candle of liberal thought going. I would say I'm a completely different person from who I was when I first arrived. In today's episode, we'll hear from professors, students, and administrators at Western universities operating in China, as well as longtime China watchers and critics, to give a deep dive into China's higher education cooperations. We'll zoom in specifically on the case of NYU Shanghai and how it's navigating China's political environment. I'm Eric Fish, and this is Asia In-Depth. We have a very fixed idea in, quote, Western countries, unquote, about what a university is. That's Mike Gao, who studies Chinese higher education and runs a blog on the topic called the Dashui. He's held research positions at Xi'an Jiaotong Liverpool University and NYU Shanghai, both Sino-Foreign joint venture schools. And we sort of reify these uh, the universities as independent from state interference, autonomous, exercising a huge amount of freedom. Whereas in China, they are very, very closely related to the state. And I think that this is, this is something that's very important to get your head around when looking at higher education in China, is that the higher education sector is kind of run with a sort of industrial policy. The purpose of higher education is not to show the world how clever they are. It's to serve the system and to act as a sort of catalyst for growth and creativity and innovation, but also providing, you know, the resources, the human resources, and training the human resources to serve the wider economy. So there's a lot of throwback to the planned economy. Uh, it's, one of the, it's one of the areas that's been least affected by marketization. The first American institution of higher education allowed to establish a physical presence in China during the communist era was Johns Hopkins University. In 1986, it established a center for Chinese and American studies inside Nanjing University. This was early in China's reform period, when the country's leaders were anxious to move past the long international isolation of the Mao era. Hopkins Nanjing was intended to give Chinese and foreign students a bilingual education that would contribute to China's relations with the outside world. And so it was formed in, again, the pre-1989 era, what I've already said was sort of a golden age for educational and cultural exchanges. That's Robert Daly speaking by phone, who served as cultural exchanges officer at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing in the late 80s and early 90s. He was later American director of the Hopkins Nanjing Center from 2001 to 2007. The deal that Hopkins took then which I think was actually a, a pretty good deal, was this. The Hopkins Nanjing Center would have full American academic freedoms. Freedoms of speech, research, freedom to debate, uh, full academic freedoms in terms of speakers, conversations that would be held within the Hopkins Nanjing Center, in exchange for which it accepted that the Hopkins Nanjing Center could not evangelize for academic freedom. In other words, the privileges of academic freedom were for the Hopkins Nanjing Center only for its students and its scholars within its walls. But the Hopkins Nanjing Center would not, for example, uh, be able to publish something that would not otherwise be publishable in China. A few years ago, those restrictions were tested. In 2011, an American student at the center tried to start a journal that included papers on potentially sensitive topics. He intended to make it available outside the university walls, but was reportedly told by administrators that that would violate the center's rules. This was after at least one Chinese student had reportedly been persuaded by a Nanjing University administrator outside the center to withdraw their article. There was no evidence that government authorities had intervened in any way. The rebukes came from within the university. But the incident was widely reported in U.S. media, and viewed by some U.S. academics as a cautionary tale about the threat of self-censorship and the limits of academic freedom in China. Again, you cannot have a publication, a journal, that would go beyond the center. Uh, but I saw nothing in the reporting on that that suggested that 
Johns Hopkins had violated the commitment to academic freedom that it made. Since Hopkins and Nanjing's 1986 establishment, dozens of universities from around the world have established arms within Chinese schools under similar terms. Some are non-degree study centers, others are akin to subject-specific colleges within Chinese universities. But in 2003, the Chinese government began allowing foreign universities to take it a step further and form full joint venture universities, in which they team up with a Chinese counterpart to form a new, legally independent degree-granting campus. The first such school was the University of Nottingham Ningbo in 2004. Since then, six more have opened, all from the U.S., Britain, and Hong Kong, with two more under development from Russia and Israel. Over the past decade or so, Chinese leaders have recognized that the low-skill, low-wage manufacturing-led growth that's long driven China's development is running out of steam as wages rise. In order to keep economic growth going, the country has to move up the value chain and become more innovative, much like Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan did. We talk about this more in a previous episode on China's economy. Mike Gao notes that this desire to become more innovative is part of what motivated China to open its higher education sector to foreign universities. There's many different reasons for it, but when you look at the flagship institutions like Nottingham Ningbo, uh, Xi'an Jiaotong, Liverpool, new institutions like NYU Shanghai, and Duke is also setting up in Kunshan, um, these are experiments, and what they want to do is learn lessons from these world-class institutions to see how they can better reform their own system. So that's really why the Chinese are, uh, have come up with these regulations in 2003 as part of WTO accession. They have to open up their education to foreign competition, but they put very clear caveats inside. The caveats he mentioned are many. When a foreign university wants to set up a joint venture, the Chinese partner maintains 51% control, and at least 51% of the students must be Chinese. When they apply, Chinese students must also take the notorious Gaokao College Entrance Exam, a stressful multi-day test that largely relies on rote memorization. And one of the most significant distinctions for joint venture universities in China is that they are independent institutions. So NYU Shanghai, for instance, legally is not a branch of NYU New York. It's a standalone university that NYU technically has just 49% control of. The remaining 51% belongs to its Chinese partner, East China Normal University. Hi, I'm Mei Li, and I was the Vice Chancellor for Asian Strategic Initiatives at New York University from 2010 to 2014. Mei Li represented NYU starting in 2010 when it was in negotiations with East China Normal University and the Shanghai government to establish a campus in China. She said that, miraculously, it only took three years from the first discussions to when the first batch of students began classes. And of all the contentious issues that came up during those negotiations, NYU being allowed to teach what it wanted and hire who it wanted without interference wasn't one of them. For us, academic freedom is our professors, regardless of where they are in the world, must be able to teach in their classroom the same way. And so my feeling was that we were crystal clear with our counterparts that that kind of academic freedom must be allowed Otherwise, NYU Shanghai, NYU could not, in good faith and good conscience, consistent with its own principles, continue. I do think that we didn't spend a lot of time talking about it because I think we all understood that was a precondition. Then there's the point of NYU Shanghai not being a branch of NYU New York, but rather an independent entity that's 51% controlled by its Chinese partner. Although students still do receive the same NYU degree that they would in New York. When asked whether this distinction matters in practice, or if it's just something semantic to make the Chinese side happy, Lee said this. So, yes. In China, we, we, I think that we say this to our freshmen when they come, which is part of this education, is to teach you to hold two seemingly disparate and contradictory ideas in your head at the same time and think about how to do that and, and still be able to speak about it coherently which is why I answered yes. I mean, as a real and practical matter, NYU Shanghai is an independent legal entity here in China. For legal purposes, for regulatory purposes, it is standalone. But for very real and all intents and purposes, it's also really a part of NYU's global network. John Sexton was president of NYU from 2002 to 2015, during which time he pushed an international expansion of the school, which included its Shanghai campus and a similar portal campus in Abu Dhabi. The NYU that Sexton envisioned was a global network where students enter one of the full campuses in New York, Abu Dhabi, or Shanghai, but can then circulate between them and 11 other NYU sites around the world. Here he is in an interview in late 2015, shortly before stepping down as president. You could view the global network 
concept as an extrapolation of uh, New York City. So New York City is the first city in the world that uh, has a neighborhood for every country in the world, which is inhabited by people that were born in that country. Yet it works as an integrated city. It's a community of communities. And as a way to view the world potentially as that, we wish we could get to the point where we're operating as a community of humankind as well as New York City is operating. Although New York City is not perfect. If one is a university as NYU is, that is in and of a city like New York, then it makes sense to say to students or faculty or staff that want to come here to be part of our community, uh, come here if you want to embrace the mission of creating a community of communities in the world. Learn the skills, research the ways in which we can build bridges and tunnels and connections among the various manifestations of humankind around the world to create perhaps a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. But Sexton's ambitious expansion plans didn't sit well with many of his faculty in New York. I'm Rebecca Carl. I'm a history professor at NYU. In September of 2013, as NYU Shanghai accepted its first class of students, Carl, who's been doing research in China since 1980, was one of five NYU professors to write an open letter expressing grave concerns over the new campus. The five signatories were all members of NYU's chapter of the American Association of University Professors, a national organization with the goal of protecting academic freedom. Our main concerns were several. One of the concerns is the very narrow reading of what academic freedom entails. She said that she and the other signatories had no doubt that NYU Shanghai students and professors are allowed to say what they want in the classroom. But that interpretation of academic freedom is too narrow. It's based upon the uh, problem that NYU Shanghai functions as a bubble. In other words, that once you step out of that bubble of protection, whether that protection is geographical or, uh, you know, geographically limited to the campus, to the actual site of the campus or not, that we're unclear about. But the bubble being the problem of not being able to freely discuss and freely propagate knowledge beyond the university walls. The idea of NYU Shanghai as a free speech bubble or an island was a characterization repeated consistently by both supporters and critics of the school. The difference was whether they thought having that island is a good thing. We're witnessing a uh, movement toward a much less liberal society in China. And therefore, it's a climate that's much more difficult for an academic institution to flourish in. That's Jerome Cohen, an 86-year-old law professor at NYU in New York and an Asia Society trustee emeritus who specializes in China's legal system. Over the past five decades, he's been an advocate for legal reform and for a number of political dissidents persecuted by Chinese authorities. He said that it so far does appear that his colleagues in Shanghai are free to say and teach what they want, which raises the possibility that the school can provide a much-needed bastion for free speech. You could say it's an effort to keep the candle of liberal thought going. And it's a place where Chinese students, as well as foreigners, can come and have a free exchange of ideas at a time when regular Chinese universities are under enormous pressure about what to teach, what teaching materials to use, what professors and even students can write about. Uh, This is a very serious situation in China today. So it will be wonderful if NYU Shanghai can keep up the flame of freedom right within the heartland of a very dictatorial society. In contrast to the highly censored internet in the rest of China, NYU Shanghai's internet is fitted with circumvention software, giving everyone free reign to surf the uncensored web. And in interviews with some two dozen students and faculty, nobody reported ever feeling constrained in what could be taught or discussed. Students recounted class discussions that had critically explored just about every sensitive issue one could think of, Tibet, Taiwan, Tiananmen Square, Xinjiang, Falun Gong, and some topics you might not even think of. For example, like I I said, like in the U.S. Constitution class, we were really using U.S. Constitutions like only a framework. That's Sam Chin, a junior from Shanghai, majoring in politics and history at NYU Shanghai. The topics like were will be like uh, should China adopt some form of judicial review, which we uh, currently don't have, and should party and state power of interrogation over corruption suspects be defined by law and confined by courts. So you can see these are really like 
sensitive issues, and we get to talk about that. These things wouldn't even be talked about in the press, but we have that freedom to talk about it. We have complete academic freedom as long as like, we hold that within the bubble of NYU Shanghai. He said that he had qualified to attend Shanghai's Fudan University, one of the most prestigious schools in China. But the greater political freedom he expected to get at NYU Shanghai made that his ultimate choice. Ever since like, middle school, we were required to take a course called politics. Like, namely, it's called politics, but it's actually like Maoism. The ruling of Communist Party is the choice of history. Like, I don't even know what that means, but you have to recite that, memorize it, and write it down in the in the exam. So for about eight years, I've like receiving that kind of education. And if you go to a Chinese college, you will continue to learn that stuff. And even in graduate school, you are required to study those things. But in Anwen Shanghai, you don't have to. And I actually got to learn the like the real Marxism, which is really cool. But the Chinese universities, they are just not going to teach you that. Chinese students are required by law to get a political education in universities, which in Chinese schools usually consists of classes in Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping theory, Marxism, morality, and modern Chinese history, all taught through a Communist Party-friendly lens. And NYU Shanghai is still subject to this law. Professors and students said that all these topics are touched upon, but they're taught by foreign professors and in a very different way than in Chinese universities. Here's Mei Li again. In this sense, we really uh, were fortunate to follow in the footsteps of other joint venture universities, uh, most notably Xijiao Liverpool and then Ningbo Nottingham. And we learned quite a lot from how they navigated these requirements. Technically speaking, we actually did devise courses that broadly would actually fulfill the requirements of uh, the Ministry of Education, which, as you point out, includes certain courses on politics. The ministry is surprising, actually. If you look at the rules and you look at what they ask for, uh, they're, again, quite broad in the description. And so we actually, in theory, fulfill those requirements. But I don't think that foreign students necessarily had to fulfill those, but Chinese students certainly did. And we wanted to make sure we had one curriculum that all the students took. One of the more noteworthy contraventions of what might be considered the party line at NYU Shanghai that students mentioned was something that happened in 2014. In September of that year, pro-democracy protests broke out in Hong Kong against mainland China's meddling in the territory's electoral process. It became known as Occupy Central and later the Umbrella Movement. It was aggressively censored in the mainland, and dozens of people were arrested for expressing support for the protests. But NYU Shanghai held a public forum to debate the unfolding events. China is blocking the whole thing. That's Cheryl Lee, a 20-year-old junior at NYU Shanghai from Taiyuan, China. Most of my other friends back in high school or something, they didn't know about this. But like we have this chance to actually talk about this in our school and know like different opinions from students from all over the world and professors. I think it's a very good chance and we are also like surprised by each other's opinion. I don't think anything is blocked in our school. When we're talking about sensitive topics, they will just ask you not to record it, but we're definitely allowed to talk about it. As she noted, restrictions were put in place to make sure the contents of the forum weren't allowed to leave the campus grounds. It raised another question. What if word did get off campus and back to Chinese authorities? Is this something Chinese students or professors worry about? Does it ever lead to self-censorship? She didn't seem to think so. If we're specifically asking about Chinese students, I feel like most people cherish this opportunity where they can speak whatever they want and they can get a lot of information that are censored before. We cherish this opportunity very much. So I don't think we will self-censored or something because you have to know like this generation of China, this young generation is very rebellious. And for professors, I think they would hesitate at first, but then I feel like gradually just during the school year, like they realize there's actually not a lot of things to concern about. About this self-censored thing, I think this is a very unfair way to put it because why do you think American will have the absolute freedom? Why would you just not think Americans are also self-censored in some way? 
Coming up in the second half, we'll look at the issue of self-censorship and how an uncensored environment with students from around the world influences Chinese students at NYU Shanghai. The weird thing is, after come to the school, they become more patriotic. And we'll also look at what happened when NYU was brought to testify before the U.S. Congress. Is it possible to accept lucrative subsidies from the Chinese government and operate campuses on their territory and still preserve academic freedom? When we return. Asia Society is an educational organization dedicated to promoting mutual understanding and strengthening partnerships among the people, leaders, and institutions of Asia and the United States in a global context. To learn more, visit us at asiasociety.org. One of the major concerns regarding American universities in China is one that plagues Chinese universities. It's not that police or government officials will overtly try to influence what happens in the classroom, but on occasion they have retaliated against outspoken students and professors, and there has been strong rhetoric against Western values from many corners of China's government, which might lead people to subconsciously censor themselves. Most of the students and professors interviewed from NYU Shanghai acknowledge that self-censorship happens at the school, but nearly all of them also challenge the premise that it's much different there than it would be in New York. Let me first say self-censorship, and this is not a way of justifying possible self-censorship. Self-censorship is anywhere. That's Lena Sheen, an assistant professor of global China studies at NYU Shanghai. She's from the Netherlands. Of course, there is a huge difference between the topics, between like why are we self-censoring ourselves and on which topics. And then, of course, in China, this is an extremely important and extremely severe issue. However, there is no place where we are more conscious of our self-censorship as China. When I'm working in the Netherlands, when I'm working in the US, I don't force myself to think about, to reflect, like what are the topics I'm actually avoiding? And they are there. Well, when I'm in China, again, the list of topics is kind of clear again, and we, we reflect on it. I know I just had a guest lecture and I told her three times, there's nothing you cannot say in class. And just before class started, she said like, so can I really mention Tiananmen? I was like, I, I said it three times. This wouldn't happen, you know, if I say in the Netherlands, you can say anything. People are okay, you know, so, so people still cannot believe. So first of all, in this building, there is no censorship. There is no self-censorship different from any form of self-censorship you might have in any other place. She added that self-censorship among China-focused academics who want to maintain access to the country is a very real issue. But NYU's presence in China does little to affect that either way. If I'm going to publish something, is that going to hurt me? Um, Is that going to, you know, should I self-censor myself? There is no difference between me being in the U.S. or being here or being in Amsterdam. Because if I'm in Amsterdam and I publish, let's say, an article about an extremely sensitive topic in China, I might not get a visa anymore to go to China. So I might choose to self-censor myself. I might choose to take that risk. That's the exact same choice I have here. If it's true that students and professors have total freedom and don't hold back any more than they would in democracies, then what effect does that have on the Chinese students, who are presumably encountering information and ideas that they wouldn't in domestic schools? Is it making them more critical of China's system? This is where things get a bit complicated. Here's Cheryl Lee. Definitely, like, Chinese students are exposed to more information. But actually, the weird thing is, I've heard some Chinese students talking about, like, after come to the school, they become more patriotic. It's probably too simple to describe this. But, like, they would just think more about their political views. Because before, like, there's this weird trend in Chinese teenagers. It's like, no matter what government say, we would, like, immediately go against it. But when I get into this environment where people just give very unfair, very biased comment about China, I would actually think about these things in a more all-round way. This totally has changed some of my way of thinking. But still, I gotta say this. I feel like sometimes American students will be like raised in a way like they are very confident about American way. They think they naturally think this is 
absolutely right what their culture have been told them. Through those kind of discussion, I don't know. Like most Western students will think democracy is the, like the only choice of humanity. It's all going to end up that way. That's Sam Chin again. But like after taking those courses, I kind of hold back a little bit because like back in high school, I was really thinking that way. Like, oh, democracy is the best, and、um, China's going to be like that in the future. But for the U.S. Constitution course, using the framework of U.S. Constitution, we were looking at Chinese Constitution. Before that, I thought like Chinese Constitution is just a crap. Like we don't even quote that in the court. But later on, I kind of figure out that like oh, the fact that we are different does not mean that we are not correct. We don't have our reasoning. Like it's just a different kind of thing. By taking those courses, they actually got me hold back and become like less, I guess, blindly liberal. You, you become more objective about things. Several Chinese students had similar feelings that they actually came to see their government more sympathetically while studying at NYU Shanghai, which is consistent with what often happens among Chinese students studying in America. After perhaps coming in with romanticized images of the West, they start to learn more of its complications. They're also often put on the defensive by American students who aggressively challenge them on political topics. Kirill Bolotnikov, an American senior student at NYU Shanghai. Said that looking back at when he first arrived at the school, he recognizes some of this in himself. I did have a discussion with my roommate freshman year. It's a little obnoxious, but I think sometimes I like to to challenge Chinese people and ask their opinion of Taiwan and about Taiwan as a province or as its own country. And I mentioned this, and he tried arguing with me about it for a little bit, and I just wouldn't back down. And finally, he just stopped and said, "This is why my father told me not to talk politics with Americans." Joanna Whaley Cohen, the provost of NYU Shanghai and professor of Chinese history. Teaches a course at the school called the Concept of China, which can yield interesting class discussions, especially when touchy subjects on historical issues and human rights come up. Felt tension in this way that American students, in particular, and I, I think this actually is Americans more than international students in general, have a lot of preconceptions about China, and they tend to want to tell the Chinese students about China. It's very polluted. It's very corrupt. It's communist. It's all these things. In rather unthought-out ways, and that really bugs the Chinese students. But over the course of a semester, each of them comes from a position that they started out with to a much more nuanced position. Junior Ben Zhang from Shanghai resisted the idea that schools like NYU might serve to liberalize Chinese students' thinking and ideology. An arrogant opinion, I would say, because NYU Shanghai is not only for. Americans, or like not only for spreading American ideology or American ideas, and that's also how some of the Chinese governors think. The the head of the the, the educational department, what what Yuan Guiren mentioned, was pretty narrow minded. No matter where you are, I mean, in the States or in China or in other countries, you should provide a space and an open area for the conflict or like the the, the communication. It doesn't matter which country you are from, or it doesn't matter what kind of ideas you have. We just like learn from each other. This is how a lot of the foreign students felt too. Sometimes students shift their opinions. Sometimes they become more entrenched. But the international environment forces people to reconcile their beliefs with those of the peers that they see every day. And most people, even if they don't end up agreeing with each other on a lot of issues, end up being able to at least sympathize and better work past the differences. I would say I'm a completely different person. From who I was when I first arrived. That's Kirill Bolotnikov again. Not just in the way that I regard American-Chinese relations, but just in the way that I regard internationality, globalization, what it means to be a quote-unquote global citizen. NYU Shanghai surrounds me with so many people from so many different cultures and mindsets. I think you have to be a very close-minded person to not come out a very different person. One memory that really stands out to me is the time that I came home at two in the morning from doing homework, and thought I was going to go pass out, and instead ran into a group of people sitting in a common room. Ended up spending the next two hours discussing religion and politics and the role religion should play in politics, with a Nepali, an English Spaniard who had gone to school in Bosnia,、um, a Pakistani, an Egyptian, a Chinese guy, and that was a really A really special moment to me, and a moment that I think is very representative of my overall experience at NYU Shanghai. 
Former NYU President John Sexton said that stories like these are a big part of why he wanted to put NYU all over the world. If one discharges students like that into society, if one uh, assembles faculty who are thought leaders in their respective fields on the great issues of the day, uh, then one increases the likelihood that humankind will advance and that the societies in which we're present uh, will advance. But they won't advance in lockstep, according to some ideology that we impose. We're not there as missionaries. We're there with a mission. And our mission is to, uh, is to educate young people and conduct research for the advance of society. But critics of schools like NYU Shanghai say that opportunities for multicultural interaction and other advantages over local universities are beside the point. I think my main concern is with institutional joint ventures. That's Jim Sleeper, a Yale political science professor who's published a number of articles critical of Western universities that set up campuses in authoritarian countries. He's been particularly concerned with the collaboration between his university and the National University of Singapore, called Yale in U.S. College. I'm certainly not at all concerned about scholars having exchanges and people coming here and there and conferences, the whole thing. That's wonderful. That should go on, and to the extent that it can be facilitated more and funded better, God bless. But when an American institution's trustees and administrators decide to attach its name to a formal stand-up institution that's a joint venture with an illiberal regime, I don't think that many of the regimes that I've written about or that I've studied a little bit are really looking for anything like the kind of liberal education that American colleges have been justly famous for nurturing for hundreds of years. He said that one big draw of Western universities for governments in countries like China and Singapore is that they can help stem the brain drains that they're experiencing. Singapore doesn't want its kids going to MIT and not coming back. So if it can get MIT's name, as it now has, and Yale's name and a lot of other names, onto buildings and campuses and even granting degrees on its own shores, of course they're eager to do that. So I think that it's a combination, and I think in China's case, uh, it's more a question of wanting certain know-how that they associate with American universities. And I think that's an instrumental reason. It doesn't go to the core of what a liberal education is. The last thing I would say on that, I think a liberal education's mission is not just to facilitate the global economy or business as usual. It does that, but it's uh, creatively... But its other side of its mission is to interrogate those things. And if you have state capitalism of any kind that is basically funding and controlling the institution, whether here or there, you're not getting quite that kind of freedom of interrogation. Or so I worry. His mention of funding is another common concern among critics for various reasons. Chinese students, who usually pay full tuition, have become big business for American universities, which are increasingly struggling to make up for budget shortfalls. So it begs the question of whether American schools are going to China to get closer to the action. But conversely, there are concerns that some schools are draining money and resources from their home institutions by setting up in China. NYU Shanghai says that it's, quote, a tub on its own bottom, and that it's financially self-contained. No funding flows to or from the New York campus. One thing that's been true from the beginning, it was one of the baselines that we, we set, was that not a penny of financial resources from New York would be diverted to anything in the Global Network University. John Sexton again. In, in the case of both Abu Dhabi and Shanghai, they're tremendous resource providers in a way. For example, there's a huge amount of faculty research that's subsidized in NYU Abu Dhabi. There's a huge amount of financial aid that's provided for students in NYU Abu Dhabi. And similarly in NYU Shanghai, there's a huge amount of faculty research that's supported, a huge amount of financial aid for students that's provided either by philanthropy in China or by our government partners. The exact details of NYU Shanghai's funding structure, and for that matter the overall agreement, is confidential. The same is true for Duke Kunshan. But it is known that both schools rely heavily on private donors, who aren't identified, and local Chinese governments. In NYU Shanghai's case, the Shanghai government donated the land, the building, and substantial subsidies for Chinese students' tuition, which allows them to pay on average less than half of the roughly $46,000 per year that international students pay. This sort of reliance on the Chinese side is precisely what makes some people nervous. Here's Rebecca Carl, 
the NYU New York history professor. The joint venture nature of it, which gives the Chinese a 51% stakehold, I, I don't think that's a model that ought to go forward. I mean, I think having study centers in China along the model of what Columbia does, what University of Chicago does, those are not joint ventures. Those are study centers for actual research, for uh, maybe study abroad, for its kinds of uh, intellectual and academic exchanges and so on. A full-blown joint venture puts NYU, which, as I say, has a privileged position as a private university that it can dictate to a great extent its own policies and its own attitudes towards uh, certain key issues in our uh, in academic and intellectual life globally, puts NYU at the mercy of a foreign government. She believes that world-renowned schools like NYU and Duke in China are essentially feathers in the Chinese government's cap, that it was able to dictate the terms of entry requiring a joint venture with the Chinese party maintaining control made it an attractive proposition. I have no doubt that the university feels sort of NYU-ish. Uh, when you go there. But uh, again, it's quite clear that the Chinese have gotten what they wanted, which is an acknowledgement that their illiberal version of things is quite compatible with liberalism. It's an unholy alliance for us. It's a holy alliance for them (laughs) if they believe in divinity, which they don't. This brings us to another criticism of these ventures, that even if they do have complete academic freedom, their very presence is akin to making a deal with the devil. As China cracks down on its own universities and Chinese professors are repressed, American institutions in the country have no real right to speak out against these things publicly. So setting up shop, in a sense, legitimizes them. John Sexton responds, though, that NYU doesn't legitimize some of the deep flaws in the American system by its presence in New York, which stretches back to 1831 when the United States had a host of laws that most people today find repugnant. No human context is perfect, and we don't view our presence here in New York as ratifying the death penalty or ratifying the concentration of wealth that one sees in American society or the degradation still, hundreds of years later, of blacks in this society or poverty. We don't ratify any of those things by being in New York, and we don't ratify uh, the things that we would criticize in China or in Abu Dhabi. One could flip the whole point and say that in the long run, this could be a very positive force against some of the very problems that the critics tend to say we embrace. We don't embrace them. I I mean, there's no doubt that there's no perfect academic freedom anywhere. Rebecca Carl again. That doesn't exist. So this isn't a critique of China with the idealized view that the United States is somehow perfect. There's no perfection anywhere. But we as a U.S. institution or an institution in the United States and a U.S. and an American institution can exert pressure in the United States, whereas we have no capacity to exert pressure in China other than moral, a moral high ground. That's not a political position that I endorse. The reliance of American schools on Chinese government organs is part of what captured the attention of Congressman Chris Smith who's held dozens of congressional hearings related to human rights in China. In 2014 and 15, he held two specifically on China's influence over American universities. Here he is at the second hearing. Is it possible to accept lucrative subsidies from the Chinese government or other dictatorships and operate campuses on their territory and still preserve academic freedom and other values that make America's universities great? I'm sure there are those here today who say they can and reference an oral assurance they receive from the government or any agreement they sign, which is often kept secret with the host government. The real answer uh, appears to be much more murky. Smith raised several of the issues explored so far, as well as a few curveballs, like when the vocally pro-life congressman asked Jeff Lehman whether NYU Shanghai is complicit in forced abortions. The answer was no. There was another issue Smith raised, though, that has been a point of concern for universities in some authoritarian countries. Maybe they won't protest when a professor is denied a visa because of his or her work 
that is critical of a dictatorship. This became an issue in 2015 when NYU philosophy professor Kwame Anthony Appiah was planning to give a lecture at NYU Shanghai, but was denied a Chinese visa. On his blog, he guessed this was because he'd repeatedly denounced Chinese government policies in a number of media outlets and was involved in nominating imprisoned Chinese distant Liu Xiaobo for the Nobel Peace Prize. He did appear for a lecture at NYU Shanghai via video link, which was reportedly marred by technical difficulties. His visa denial echoed that of Andrew Ross, an NYU sociologist who's done research critical of labor conditions in the United Arab Emirates. When he went to catch a flight to NYU's Abu Dhabi campus in 2015, he was told he was barred from entering the country. Ross was also one of the five signatories to the open letter expressing concern about NYU Shanghai's campus. I raise the issue of visa denials with John Sexton. Well, first of all, the, the, the mobility of uh, people around the world is, is, is something that governments handle. And uh, there are a lot of people I'd like to have come into the United States that don't get into the United States. And people don't expect a, a red line there. It's not the function of, of, of NYU to ensure that borders be completely porous. Indeed, borders shouldn't be completely porous. And that's a governmental issue. I may express an opinion on particular cases privately, but it's not my function as president of NYU to be involved in what the State Department and our government does. One of the key themes of Chris Smith's congressional hearing was the larger environment for academic freedom in China, and whether it would be possible for foreign universities to remain immune to political events unfolding outside their walls. One of the witnesses was Robert Daly, the former U.S. Embassy official and Hopkins Nanjing Center director we heard from earlier. At one point, he addressed the infamous remarks by Education Minister Yuen Guirin instructing universities to resist Western values. I would argue that there is a way forward under the current set of circumstances. Now, circumstances could change, and there's definitely a time to pull out tent stakes and say that, yes, while the, the perfect may be the enemy of the good, China is imposing conditions on American universities that they cannot meet. As, as you mentioned, there, there could be a time to leave, but we are not there yet. And the reason, I think, is that despite Xi's, Xi Jinping's ideology campaign and despite the political character of Chinese universities, American universities have been able to find ways to interact with Chinese counterparts that do not threaten academic freedom. Xi Jinping's campaign and Yuan Guiren's pronouncements against American textbooks haven't meant much in practice yet on campuses. Many Chinese students and scholars within China, furthermore, question and mock openly Yuan Guiren's call to restrict Western textbooks. And they do this in state-run media. So it's hard to keep track of what, what all this means in China. In a later telephone interview, Jeff Lehman similarly made the point that there's often more than meets the eye behind the big pronouncements at the top of China's government. They're often motivated by internal party dynamics and have limited impact at the ground level. The Communist Party has a huge ideological range within it. There's kind of a Tea Party wing, which would be the extreme left. And then there is a progressive wing. And then there's a, a center. He said that these different branches and factions of the government often send out conflicting messages. So he tries not to get worked up either way, whether the signals seem to be promising or ominous. He added that two weeks after Education Minister Yuan Guirin made his remarks about resisting Western values, he actually ended up sitting next to him at a dinner in Beijing and got a very different impression. So I, I asked him you know, how he felt about NYU Shanghai, and he could not have been more enthusiastic about what we're doing. And he said, absolutely, you're doing great. Keep up the good work. Keep going. You know, we, we watch what you're doing, and uh, we're very, very grateful for, for the work that you're doing. So um, you, you have to be measured in your reaction when you read things that, that are alarmist. In late 2016, current Chinese education minister Chen Baosheng met current NYU president Andrew Hamilton, wherein he reportedly praised NYU Shanghai as a model for Chinese higher education and pledged to fully support its growth. But since that time, the environment for higher education in China has seemed to deteriorate in several ways. On January 1st this year, a new NGO law came into effect that, at least on paper, could severely limit the activities of foreign organizations in China, including universities, and put them under tighter control of the Ministry of Public Security. After the law was drafted, 13 American universities with a presence in China, including NYU and Duke, wrote a letter of concern to the Chinese government, saying the law was overly broad and ambiguous. More recently, though, an NYU spokesperson said that the school's legal status as a Chinese-controlled joint venture means it won't likely be affected by the law. There was another ominous signal this past December, when a high-level education conference was held with a wide array of education, propaganda, and military officials, as well as President Xi Jinping and three other Politburo members. 
It reiterated rhetoric about resisting Western influence in higher education, and in February it was announced that ideological inspection teams would be dispatched to top Chinese universities. A few students and faculty said privately that they do worry about a worsening political environment in China eventually seeping into the so-called bubble of foreign universities. But so far, relatively liberal sectors within the Chinese government, like the Ministry of Education and local governments in cosmopolitan cities, have gone to bat for these schools. But that could change, which Lehman alluded to in his congressional testimony. China is a constantly changing place. It's, as, as Mr. Daly testified right now, there are mixed signals all around us. Uh, we hear different voices all the time. And so we don't know what tomorrow will be like. But I would be very surprised if the government of Shanghai were to say, well, sorry, we don't want you anymore. But they could. That's their prerogative. Conversely, they could try to go partway and say, well, we want you, but you can't have academic freedom. And if they did that, then NYU would leave. There were a few things that emerged from these congressional hearings that would likely lend to the concerns of critics. In a written testimony, the president of Fort Hayes State University discussed her school's partnership with Xinyang Normal University. In one section, she wrote that Tiananmen Square is the only topic their faculty has chosen to avoid. Not because anyone asked them to, but because it's believed to be too sensitive in China. Another thing to come out of the hearings was the commissioning of an investigation by the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, an investigative arm of Congress. It looked into 12 American universities with branches in China, both joint ventures and smaller operations within Chinese universities. The resulting report, released in 2016, did seem again to affirm some of the concerns of critics. For instance, only three of the 12 schools provided uncensored internet access, and the student handbook at one school warned students that browsing illegal websites according to Chinese law is forbidden. An administrator at one school even said that the government required them to track and keep records of what websites staff and students visited, though no official had ever actually asked for the records. The report didn't specify the schools in these cases. Faculty members from several schools also reported that some Chinese students know or suspect that they have classmates who report back to unspecified government authorities about university activities and classroom discussions. The report concluded that most of these institutions do include language in their agreements with Chinese parties to protect academic freedom, but the degree to which that actually plays out in the classroom varies. And it said, quote, Given that motivations to self-censor can be deeply rooted in individual concerns and shaped by long-established conditions in China, universities have limited ability to prevent self-censorship in the classroom or on campus, unquote. Professor Jerome Cohen said that issues like these that were highlighted by Chris Smith's hearings are serious and are certainly worth tracking closely. But as an old China hand who's lived through five decades of ebbs and flows in the country's political environment... He said ties between Chinese and American scholars and students can help the long-term trajectory going in a positive direction. Congressman Smith has done some remarkable work in being sensitive to some of the uh, adverse developments in China. At the same time, however, he isn't much aware of the ferment in China and the need not to abandon all these people who hunger for contacts with the West uh, when you say we cut off our universities in China, think what you're doing to hundreds of thousands of people potentially who'll be deprived of the chance to study Western versions of Chinese history in China and the opportunity to learn about all the great achievements of other countries as well. Uh, it's not so easy to be dogmatic and to be against compromise. I don't see major compromise yet on the part of uh, NYU Shanghai. If I did, I'd be among the first to criticize it. So uh, I'm not worried yet, but it's a daily challenge. Thanks for listening. We do want to say that we reached out for comment from Congressman Chris Smith's office, as well as the Chinese Ministry of Education, but got no response from either. If you want to hear more episodes, you can go to asiasociety.org slash podcast, where we also put some related links to this episode. You can also subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Our music is by Thierry Mangmang and his ensemble, Shui Men Tibin Zapwe. They were performing live at Asia Society in New York as part of a season of Myanmar. I'm Eric Fish, and we'll see you next time on Asia In-Depth.